You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Nils Castro-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investment journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode that I did with Moritz, where we dived into some interesting topics when it comes to trend-following system design. And also, we did cover a little bit of Bitcoin, as we normally do when Moritz is on. Jerry, great to have you back in the new year. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Things are great here in Florida. It's not as warm as I'd hope. It's a little early. We've woken up Petey the cockatiel. Apologies <laughs> to Petey. But uh, glad to be back on, and I've missed you guys. And uh, uh, the podcast was amazing last week. It's the first thing I do Sunday morning or Monday morning, try to find the podcast and see what's going on, and really been enjoying it. It's uh, at a higher level. We've uh, definitely improved. We improve with age, I guess, just like wine. Anyways, in terms of the week as such, before we dive into things, of course, we did see a change in the U.S. administration. It did turn out to be a relatively quiet week for our strategies, partly due to yesterday's sell-off in many of the futures markets that kind of neutralized profits from early in the week. Of course, with the new administration in Washington, we are all waiting to find out what the new roadmap is going to look like, especially after all the surprises we had in 2020, because when you lose control, this is when you most want to hold on to something. And the funny thing is that we should have learned in 2020 is that forecasting the future doesn't really work, not least when it comes to forecasting a crisis. And I guess we could just ask ourselves how many times in the past 20 years the so-called experts or authorities have been able to predict in advance these crises. And the answer is, of course, none of them. So um, we do ask the same people, despite their track record, and they use the same economic models or methods, I, I guess, to guide us out of these crises and provide us with a better and more stable future. And on that topic, last night, we saw the official return to uh, Janet Yellen. But this time, she's going to be in the U.S. Treasury rather than the Fed. And it will be interesting to see if her absence from public service has inspired her to look at the previous policies in a new light. But... All of this actually plays into our hands as investors, those of us who choose to embrace a few simple concepts such as diversification, non-predictive investment strategies, and being long-term. And I think certainly 2020 confirmed, in, in our case, I'm sure Jerry will say the same, it confirmed our strong commitment to these three concepts, and I hope it did the same for all of you listening today. So, Jerry, with that, Let's dive into where you are in terms of your trend following since we last spoke a few weeks ago. I know you had a great year last year, but why don't you bring us up to speed and maybe also how the new year 
is shaping up? Well, I think, you know, yesterday was a bad year. I have too many longs, and they're all very profitable. So I really like the performance in November, December. I'd say I don't remember having a better month, and then I had two of them in a row. Certainly risk-adjusted. I trade a lot smaller than I did in, uh, when I first started. And so I had a, two great months, and January started off great as well with these commodity trends and dollar trends continuing. But, you know, we're long everything with almost no shorts. That's a little... Makes me a little nervous. We need some uh, short commodities, and we don't have them. So I'm happy with the performance and the big uptrends and the grains and the metals, base metals primarily, and then all the grains. But uh, you know, they had a grains had a massive sell-off yesterday, so it just means we're going to be tested with all of these markets more than likely. That uh, are we going to stick with our systems that are long-term exits and watch this open trade equity? fluctuate around or are we going to interrupt and get in there and nail down partial profits maybe making excuses that it's risk management or vol targeting or something it's not trend following necessarily because unfortunately the trends are intact and uh, they're probably not even at two-week lows so we gotta i think we should hold on and uh to these profits and hopefully they can turn into much bigger profits but that's where the rubber meets the road. What are we going to do with these wonderful profits? Are we afraid or are we bold and hoping that they're going to keep going? Yeah, indeed. Actually, uh, and I'll, I'll dive in to a bit more detail with my own model portfolio in a second, but uh, it's funny because it turned out, and I don't know about you, but it turned out last week when I spoke with Moritz that actually both of our oldest or longest positions right now uh, were the same. It was actually the Nikkei. We both had that as the oldest position in our portfolios. And of course, we all trade a little bit differently, different markets, and I'm sure we're going to dig into that in a second. But let me counter that with what happened on our side. So in terms of our trend-following strategies this week, they were pretty flat, actually. We did have some gains in the first few days of the week, but then yesterday pretty much corrected that back to neutral. The week broken down by sectors, we had gains in stocks and currencies and then offset by losses in the grain sector, as you also mentioned, Jerry, and the rest of the portfolio was pretty flat. For my own trend-following model portfolio, that was actually up this week. It's up about 3.3% so far this year. Performance comes in from, and I'm referring to something that people can go and listen to, an episode I did a few weeks ago of the holidays, so I'm just going to refer to that. But it came from what I define as Group 2 models, which are trying to mimic how discretionary traders trade, even though it's an algorithm. And also some of the classical trend-following models did okay this week, whilst the fast-moving models were flat. Sector contributions, equities, energies, and base metals were the best, and the worst were currencies, precious metals, and bonds. In terms of single markets, top three were Nikkei, Copper, and the Swiss market index. And the bottom three were the Euro, Gold, and German Bunds. Trading-wise, very little activity. Some uh, reduction in exposure in the Euro, in aluminium, and in soybean meal. So reducing long positions there. And also added a little bit of coffee to the portfolio this week. In terms of risk, something that also... Morris and I spoke to last week because 
the way I look at it, and I don't know if you do the same, Jerry, but I look at also how much would I lose if all markets got stopped out today? That number, the kind of risk to stop last week had narrowed from about 20% down to about 14 and actually it remained completely unchanged this week at 14. So that's kind of the open risk that it, the portfolio carries at the moment. But before we go to all the questions, I, I do like to stay a little bit with this kind of a deep dive into the trend following side of things, if you don't mind. You mentioned to me some of the things that looked interesting, soybeans, Bitcoin. I mean, maybe just to give a glimpse, I know everybody follows Bitcoin. It's obviously had some big moves. Have you looked recently as to exactly how that's evolving? I'm sure you're still long, but in terms of stops and where you got into those trades, just to give people a little bit of a feel for how to trade a market like that from a trend-following perspective, which is something I don't, so I can't really add a lot of value to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I want to trade these markets the same way, and uh, the same Bitcoin is the same as soybeans. I've traded soybeans since 1984, and then Bitcoin it becomes liquid, and it's a diversifier, let's say, and it's liquid, and uh, so I throw it in the portfolio, and it's it uh, uses the same methods. And I think it's really easy to hold on to buy the breakouts. You know, there's nothing more important than buying the breakout. If you don't buy the breakout, now what are you going to do with these some of these markets? I don't know. You need to follow the system and do the back test. The back test says, hey, just go ahead and buy that breakout. So when you don't do that, for whatever reason, we've all done it. I've done it. You're in a mess. And so it's so easy to hang in there and just hold on as it sort of drifts higher, quietly. That's what we want. And the stop moves up, the breakout stop, which is doesn't move up as quickly as I'd like, but it continues to move up. But then you get the soybeans and the big rallies where you make so much money so quickly. And then the Bitcoin, the volatility goes crazy. A $2,000 a day we'd never seen before on Thanksgiving. Well, that's nothing now. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I mean, so, and you know, what does the trend following system do? It adapts, right? You know, it adapts. It doesn't adapt the way I want it to. I want it to get me out or move up or get me out at the right place. You know, these exits are so important. You know, they're important in that they don't give back too much or they, they don't get out too quickly. Well, that's random. I mean, it, am I going to get out too quickly with this exit that I have? I don't know. Am I going to give back too much? Am I going to stay in too long? I have no idea. I just know that over a long period of time on my back test, looking at all the different markets that incorporate a lot of crazy trends, this is the best way to trade and the, I'll make the most amount of money. You know, here in sports, they'll say things like uh, on TV, they'll say, if you had to win one game, who's your quarterback be? Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers? Or if you had to win one World Series game, who would your pitcher be? Uh, Clayton Kershaw or Greg Maddox? And a trend following is the opposite. If you had to make money right now, get out of this trade perfectly, then don't ask trend following. It does not have a clue. <laughs> All it says is, oh no, I'll be in the Hall of Fame. If you want to be in the Hall of Fame after 20 years, this is how you get in and out of trades. But any one particular trade, any one particular game, I am totally worthless. I may give back way too much profit. I may uh, stay in way too long or get out way too quickly like in Tesla. So it's just 
a very frustrating situation. And the only thing that you, and as important as this month is and this year is and every day is to us and our brains, the only thing we can rely upon is I did the back test. This is a good place to enter and exit over looking back over 20 or 30 years in a back test with lots of markets and lots of environments and crazy situations. And I've just got to go with that. What happens? I don't know. I'll be criticized. I'll be hailed as amazing trader, but it's just all me following the system. So getting into situations like we're in this week with uh, tremendous volatility and our exits are not getting close to being hit in soybeans or the grains from a trend following perspective or Bitcoin, we're sitting here as much as I loved the start of the year and November, December, I'm waiting. My fate is going to be determined by these systems that made this money in November and December. But what is, what are they going to do to me this year? You know, it's funny because, and maybe for people who are new to the show, who haven't heard us talk about these things, maybe I just want to add a little bit of color to that because I hear you say that it's frustrating, right? But at the same time, it's also, at least in my opinion, we also have this, it's a great relief in a sense at the same time because we don't have to worry about it. We, we do worry about it to some extent. We can't just ignore it completely. At the same time, we have this roadmap. We have this plan. We know exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that actually is what gives us that relief valve at the same time where the frustration doesn't take over because we don't have to, at the end of the day, do anything other than follow the plan that, as you say, is based on a lot of research, a lot of backtest, etc. And here's something that I think is interesting because a lot of systematic strategies, right, are based on historical data and, I mean, probably all of them are, and based on rules. But even if you do that as your concept, you can end up with two very different results, right? So on one hand, you have trend following that is built on looking at historical data, coming up with rules. And even though we then go through a period like 2020, where we had not seen, it's not in our data, the way the markets moved, we survived. Many, including yourself, had a great year. That's amazing. Then at the same time, you take another strategy like long-term capital management, as an example, where they also did their backtest based on historical data to come up with their rules. Yet, when something happened that they had not seen before in their data, it blew up. So kind of a little bit the same event, but two very different results. And I think that is quite interesting. And I sometimes find it a little bit hard to accept that people don't see the same value in what we do that, of course, we do because we're biased. But doing what we do and coping with things that, frankly, is new many times, but being able to cope with that for decades, I think it has tremendous value. And I think, as I said in my introduction, I mean, if 2020 taught us anything, and that is you should expect the unexpected. So why wouldn't you want a strategy as we, now that Moritz is not here, we can talk about a store of wealth, right? A safe store of wealth. Why wouldn't you want all your money in a strategy that seemingly seems to be able to cope with new situations or at least have done so far for 50 plus years? Exactly. The difference between trend following and short-term trading, uh, that's, that's a long podcast, but uh, we've gone over it a lot. But uh, yeah, I mean, maximum diversification, longs and shorts, 
all the different sectors and commodities, taking small profit, taking small losses. As soon as we step into the game, we're the most risk averse without really impacting materially our potential for profit. We almost thrive on making money on things that have never happened before. If it's never happened before, we're going to be there. You know, we're going to capture those trends. Never seen Tesla, never seen a stock market like this. You just be dumb enough to not get out and hold on to the profit and use your trailing stop. Now, I think we'll get into this later that the swiftness of last year's sell-off in the stock market, the trend following didn't handle that optimally, possibly. Maybe getting in, it did, and then maybe getting back in, it did not due to the structure of the charts and the speed at which it all happened. So that's about as bad as you can say for us. You know, we preserved capital, we got out, we, de- we were defended, we didn't have only stocks. You know, we didn't make as much money as if we'd have stayed in with maximum risk. You know, if you're willing to stay in that stock market when it was uh, going down like that, that's a pretty risky situation. And so you deserve to make some money. I mean, the next time you're going to lose your ass like you did in 2008, <laughs> but uh, pretty happy with our strategy. It's, 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 it's a common sense, much different and uh, feels much safer. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think actually, and I, this was something you brought up as, as some of the things we should talk about. So I'm, I'm interested as to where you're going to go with this. But let me set it up because 2020, when I look at various ways of doing trend following, it probably reminded us a little bit about the power of what you call trend following basics, right? And of course, we know that the industry evolves and and we kind of try and find ways to alleviate some of the negatives about trend following basics because it can be a hard, really hard strategy to hold on to. So talk to me a little bit about what you mean by that, that maybe we are not doing enough of the trend following basics and how that plays out. And I'll give you a little bit of my thoughts on that because I thought that actually was a really good point. Well, I think uh, 2020 is a prime example. And you've said it a number of times on the podcast that it seems that at least uh, for 2020 in February, March, they're just selling those breakouts quickly without any filtering the basic trend following did pretty well. And I think that's a good point. And 2020 sort of highlights that we get caught up in our bells and whistles to our basic trend following. And we say, whoa, wait a second, the markets are really taking over here. (laughs) And uh, I feel really out of control. Just get short as quickly as possible. And then when the markets turn around, take your small losses or start going long. And you see what happens in, in November, December. We're just helpless. We buy the soybeans in August and the grains, we make a fortune in the dollar the same way. So we had nothing to do except don't do anything. Take your hands off. And so sometimes the markets take over and we forget like, you know, I'm really beholden to these trends in these markets and I shouldn't feel bad. I can't manufacture profits. They're either going to happen and I'm going to be there or there's not going to be trends. And I think we talk about it, but we don't really absorb it and feel it with confidence. Like I have no problem with prior years because if I didn't make money, there weren't trends. Yep, I'm letting myself off the hook, but maybe I shouldn't be a trend follower. But if I'm going to be a trend follower, then why should I even have any anxiety over periods where there are no trends, which 
I'm just going to keep my confidence in my approach the same, and maybe there will be trends, and whoops, there's the trends, and I participated, and now I'm a hero. Now trend following works. But I do think what I wrote was, uh, take small profits and let your winners run. CTAs aren't doing enough of this. And I think now, are we going to let these winners run? Are we going to be eager to get out of these profits? Because now we're hitting some bumpy roads and some volatility in the grains. So what are we going to do? Are we going to follow the systems that have been back-tested, that we are comfortable with, that have lived through 20 or 30 years of historical performance, and we've said, okay, this is the back test. I like it. Now it's 2021. We've had a good run. Don't you think we should take some profits off the table? Should we introduce more bells and whistles that are not trend-following based necessarily? They're risk-based. And I just feel things are very risky here. All of these trades are super profitable. It's not a chance in the world, probably, that they're going to turn into these small losses. That's done. That's over with. Now the trailing stops kick in. And am I going to wait for the trailing stops? Have we been doing enough of this? Or have we been messing around with take profits and vol targeting and, oh, the holy grail of everything, money management. No one knows what it is exactly. It's, it's whatever is, it's in the eye of the beholder. But to me, money management just sounds like an alternative way to violate the core trend-following basics and the rules and just to take some profits. Things feel very volatile here. I'm going to exercise some risk management. I hope you pick up my sarcasm and my disdain for that silliness. Because at the end of the day, you know, we don't want to have a big regret. Gosh, if I would have just followed the trend-following basics, I would have made so much more money. And I think that's the truth. That is the absolute truth. Yeah, and I think we got definitely, as we started by saying, I think we got reminded of that last year, which which is a good reminder after a few years where it's certainly been challenging without a doubt. But I also think it has to do with the fact that when you look at the commentary, if you look at the narrative last year, right, most of the narrative for pretty much 11 months was not that positive really about trend followers. And I think people forget, and I've said this before, but you really have to go in and you have to look at, okay, so what were the positions of these trend-following strategies on the 23rd of March when you most needed protection? Well, it was actually exactly what you would want. But we don't get rewarded by that when the markets turn on a dime and go straight up the other way and we just sit back and face with some givebacks and maybe even losses in the next few months. And that is what really surprises me that people don't dig a little bit deeper and saying, well, this is exactly what I needed during this period. Instead, they just look at, oh, but actually equities were fine. You know, they came and saved us, so we should have just stayed long. And of course, as you said earlier, speed became a quite an interesting differentiator in terms of trend following performance last year. There's definitely some differences in manager performance based on how whether you got out of your stocks and maybe you got short or whether you just stayed long. We, we know that. So, of course, that is something people have to also look into a little bit deeper. Did you have the right type of trend following if you are actually looking at it as some kind of protector during a period like that? So, And how many stocks did you have on? Yeah. Do you trade a lot of stocks or you trade not too many stocks? So yeah, that's a differentiator as well. Short-term performance is not a good indication of quality of the future yeah quality of the systems quality of the portfolio that's another thing too i know we're going to talk about another podcast i think with the title of lessons of 2020 
Yeah, we can do it now. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed Corey's podcast with uh, Odd Lots. I love Odd Lots. I love listening to Corey. And I would just say, I did listen to the podcast and I did enjoy it. But I would say that in, as a general rule, maybe not to discourage you from listening to the podcast, I would just say there are no lessons from 2020. You know, there, there's no such thing as lessons from 2020 for Jerry's trend following. No, there's no lessons. There is, it's too short term. And when you want to concentrate it basically into February and March or November and December, that's silly. The lessons that we take from trend following are the 20 to 30 year back test, not February. Now, I've said before, I think in February, I, I changed my mind and I had too many stocks. I don't want to have as many stocks as I thought I did. I permanently made a, a, a reduction in my allocation to the equity sector. Uh, I did learn that fact. I don't want to be in a situation ever again where I have a couple of bad days and my portfolio is devastated because I had too many grains, I had too many metals, I had too many stocks. It's the same situation. And I'll live with the fact that, uh, well, stocks in the future will continue to be the great best performer. So take that. I'll, okay, I'll live with that if that turns out to be the situation. But all in all, I think that um, making material changes to your system uh, based upon a short time period is lead you in the wrong direction. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think that's interesting. So the way I listen to the podcast episode, and I also really enjoy how Corey can articulate some of these things, but what caught my attention, and perhaps where I disagree a little bit, is that initially the two hosts were trying to get from Corey kind of the, so what is the thesis, what is the theoretical reason as to why trend following makes money? And Corey is very well, you know, his foundation of academic research is, is very high. They write a lot of research papers. So he gave what I would call the classical two different types of reasoning, one being, well, you know, there are hedges in the markets and we provide liquidity to them and so on and so forth, et cetera, et cetera. And I was just thinking to myself when I heard that, and I thought, well, you know, maybe sometimes you can't really see the forest for the trees because why don't why do we make it so complicated having to explain why it works? The easiest thing was just to take ten charts, take twenty charts, take fifty charts, just look at them, and none of them is a flat line, right? Markets move for whatever reasons they move. Sometimes they move a lot, sometimes they move a little. So this is, to me, the simplest way of just looking at why trend following works is because markets are not static. They have their up moves, they have their down moves, i.e. trends, and that's why we still, after all these decades, are in business if we can have a method of capturing that. So I know why these people want to talk about it in, in, in this very academic fashion and maybe you can't get into an institutional portfolio if you don't have some kind of academic explanation, but I just sometimes think we try and overcomplicate matters. So I don't know what you think about that kind of thing, being a little bit more common sense rather than too fancy with your explanations. But that was one of my takeaways where I would have preferred another answer, but I know why he, would, I know why he did it because that's what they were looking for. I totally agree. And the world is not a normal distributed 
place. There's these crazy right. things that are happening, good and bad, long and short. We try to cut off the tail on the negative side for us, the losing trades, and just participate in the craziness and the instability of this world that we live in. And can you imagine what was going on in February and March or the soybeans and the grain breakouts in August and September <laughs> and sitting there going very dispassionately like, well, we're providing liquidity to what right. the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, and I think, you know, introspection, we, we just so often do not know, like people will give me praise or criticism and they won't even know why I did well. Oh, I got lucky. I'm not going to say that. Or I really screwed up. I didn't follow my system in 1998. You know, they don't even know. And I, you know what? I don't know about Dunn and I don't know about Corey. And these situations that we get into as humans that are different from our core systematic approach, they can have a material impact on our performance. And I know that he wrote on his website the situation where the, during the back test, they said, well, we kind of played around with the entries and realized that we could actually make more money if we delayed the entry two and a half days. Three days. Just the back test says we make more money. And I'm like, dude, get that out of there right now. You know, right. take that as a lesson. Jerry's taken the lesson of I had on too many stocks. They can go to one very quickly. Don't it's not as much correlation in the stock sector as you want it to be. Corey, take out these delays. Hit the breakout, dude. You know, I don't care what the I don't care what the back test had said. There are gonna be times where you're going to want to reverse that position or get into that new trade as quickly as possible. The back test is just giving us these really f bad ideas of what is going to happen in the future. And I've often said, just take as little from the back test as you possibly can. You just want a decent place to enter and a decent place to exit. And what has happened historically is not going to happen in the future. Your average win, your average loss, your win percentage, that might persist. It may continue, but that's about it. I just am a big enemy of looking at the back test too intensely and, and gaining knowledge from the back test. But, you know, for some people, that's their job. How would you like yeah. to be in that situation? The other thing, I mean, we both love what Corey does, so we don't want to sound like we're trying to make any critiques here as such and maybe we should have because Corey has been on the podcast we should have him back and we should continue our conversation but there was one other point and again this is just my opinion but there's one other point that I and maybe it wasn't discussed but one thing that I would have brought up let's put it that way because they talked about again so why does trend following work why is it valuable and all of that and I'm thinking well hang on so now you're talking about trend following on stocks and this is not how trend following was built. This is not how it was conceived. It was conceived as trend following on a diversified portfolio of non-correlated markets or individual markets. So what happens, unfortunately, when you hear someone having to say, well, 2020, we had a crisis, but it didn't work. We lost money. People will immediately say, well, that's a proof that trend following doesn't work. But I think people forget that that's not what it was designed to do. Trend following does, was not necessarily designed to work on individual stocks or on one sector in isolation. 
it was built because when you do it consistently across a portfolio of very different markets, then that's what the data shows and what the live track record shows, like yourself, like Don, that it has proven to work. And I feel that that part of the puzzle or that part of the argument often gets missed. Maybe because there obviously are people who think more about trend following as a concept. You can sell a trend following system and people can just go and do it for themselves on anything. But I don't think you can. I really think you have to get the diversification. That is just another thing that I feel more and more strongly about that you can't have, you shouldn't do one without the other. I have a little disagreement with you on that. That's fine. But just a little bit. But um, I'm sure that trend following was started in using stocks only. And Yeah, if you go back before uh, right. Richard and, and, and Don and all of those people. Yeah. Right. So trend following on stocks is perfectly great. It's better than not trend following. Okay. It's always better than anything else. And it especially took off, I would assume, with commodities because people maybe thought, well, with stocks, there's so much information that I don't really need trend following. I'll do the value stuff or the analysis, the earnings per share stuff. But I, maybe I don't know enough about commodities that I will. So maybe there was an allure to use trend following with commodities. But then all of a sudden, somebody, the managed futures guys, uh, John Henry, Dunn, they say, hey, you know, the optimal way to trade is all the markets, currencies, commodities, bonds and stocks, long and short, this will be the best way. And in trend following is not uniquely unsuited for a lack of diversification. It's not uniquely unsuited. Trading stocks only is way worse than trading stocks only with trend following. There's no risk control. But trend following can be better and will have the optimal strategy and with a better portfolio, thus this is what we preach all the time. Stocks are not inherently superior to the other three sectors. They're not better trenders, but they have looked like that they are recently, but they have not been prior to Fed intervention and uh, zero interest rates. So when you and I got into the business, the marketing was we have lower drawdowns and we have better performance than stocks. So I think that trend following is always great and better regardless of the portfolio. Managed futures is trend following plus lots of diversification. And you and I still think that that's better than trend following stocks only, trend following bonds only, trend following FX, trend following commodities only. Gosh, we think it's much better than trading than not using trend following. So that's just more of a... Yeah, no, that's, that's perfectly fair. And one of the things, speaking of diversification, I thought you mentioned to me before we started, or maybe it was in one of your emails, that you have adjusted your thinking a little bit about diversification. Do you remember what you meant by that? Unfortunately, you know, I, I like to come on and admit to my uh, <laughs> changes in my opinions. And, uh, you know, I just think that one of the lessons I've learned in doing research and backtesting is that precision doesn't really win. I have lots of ideas, and the more I try to take it out to the multiple decimal points, the more silly it looks. And the answers that I get back from my research is uh, none of these breakout levels is uniquely better than any of the others. You can be too short-term. I think you can be too long-term. But everything in the middle has about the same performance. 
And I think I got into a situation where I was trying to fine tune with lots of precision exactly how large to trade each market, which was not the way I was taught to trade. So I think I have decent diversification. See, that's where I want to be. I have decent trend following. I have decent diversification, lots of currencies, commodities, stocks, and bonds, lots of them, over 100 markets. I trade them pretty small. No one position on any day has any material impact to my performance. I made a ton of money last year just because everything was working, which is good. I, I want to put myself in a situation where everything has to not work for me to really have bad performance. So that's unlikely. It will happen. It has happened. But it's, it's, it's where I'd like to be. But I don't want to fine tune. And I think I lost sight of something that you kept saying, which so I'm not 100% in your camp, but I do think and I even admitted that there has been years where I made my whole year was heating oil. I think it was twice. But then I've also said, but you know, heating oil, crude and unleaded, it's the same market. So reduce your exposure and take that into consideration that they're 99% correlated. That's a little exaggeration. Sure, sure. So how do you reconcile those two? And I think I'm going to be moved back towards the middle a little and say, well, I'm going to trade heating oil, crude, and unleaded the same size as cotton and coffee that are not correlated to anything, let's say, because there will be a time where there'll be a tremendous outlier in heating oil and not in crude and not in unleaded or in crude and not the other two. And so, no, I don't have perfect diversification in the energy sector. I'm trading a little bit too large, let's say, not as quite as precise as I could be, but let's move some of our emphasis towards the possibility of a monster outlier mm. and trade all the markets basically the same size. You don't have to trade Brent if you don't want to, but if it's in there, if crude, heating oil, unlettered are in there, just go ahead and trade them about the same size. And if you have this big outlier, like you've seen historically, they cease being 99% correlated for a short period of time, you'll make a lot of money in that outlier. And so I think I'm going to move a little bit towards emphasizing what's going to happen if I have a big outlier trade in a market that's supposedly very correlated with other markets. I'll take the extra losses that I'll get when energy kind of has a bad period, but I'm pretty decently diversified. I don't want to be too much more than decently anything and try to convince myself and fool myself that this backtest and this correlation analysis is so great and wonderful uh, to the fourth or fifth decimal place. Does that, does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And actually, it makes perfect sense because you reminded me of something that I thought was really valuable in our conversation in late December. And that is, we shouldn't be too opinionated or too clever about these things. Just like you said, treat Bitcoin, treat Tesla like any other market. And I think this falls into the same thing here, meaning... That's the mindset we really should have, not have any really strong views other than on some of these core things like diversification, like following the rules, you know, doing our risk management. That's where we should be 100% disciplined. But all these where we try and be too clever about, okay, but what if this happens and what if that happens? I think that's exactly what you just reminded yourself about, that you reminded me about in December let's not try and predict anything and therefore these markets need to be allowed to 
be correlated from time to time to give the portfolio some conviction from time to time? Because as you rightly said, you had a great year last year because everything was just moving and we all right now look at our portfolios and we're along pretty much everything. It feels uncomfortable, but that's how we make money. We need to allow them to do exactly that from time to time. Exactly. Yeah, I remember thinking like, don't be skeptical and don't dig too deep. You know, uh, don't be skeptical of Bitcoin. You know, uh, take your small loss. Yeah. I mean, you've got that, you've got that part covered. We have the Type One era covered. What if I do something that turns out not to be correct? I'm going to lose 30 bips. Type Two era. What if I miss something that was amazing? We have nothing. We have nothing to help us on that. It's gone. We missed the breakout. Oops. I I thought Bitcoin was blah blah blah. I was too skeptical. I dug too deep. I did my research. My research told me, oh my gosh, right? Diversification trend, take small losses. You can't predict. These are these eternal little principles that, you know, and, and another thing that's kind of fun is it's something that every listener can do. And, and we're trying to tell them we've had this long career where we started with that as all, all we knew. We knew nothing other than those basics. We had tremendous success initially. Then we got in trouble with too many assumptions and digging too deep, too many spreadsheets and backtesting. And now we're at the end of the career, well, me, I'm at the, towards the end of my career, saying, hopefully not, <laughs> saying, you know, you guys who are starting out and don't know anything and don't even know how to do a back test, you're right where you want to be. You're in great shape. You're not polluted and contaminated. Trend following is so difficult for people who are very intelligent. It doesn't hold their interest. It's not meeting their psychological and emotional needs. We can always do better than waiting for that exit, that simple breakout exit. I think what I'm saying is I, I was not able to. I don't think that that's true. No, but it also proves another thing, just to go completely full circle here. It proves that Richard Dennis was absolutely right in picking people who had no background in trading, gave you the rules, told you to follow them. You did. And... It was a great success. And all the other stuff came much later, right? Where we do start to question things because we think we're much cleverer now, right? We've seen all these things and we're worried about things. Running a trend-following strategy, maybe you do want a group of 25-year-olds who are not contaminated to just sit in your trading room and implement the trades and not having too many opinions, too much baggage, too many experiences with them like unfortunately we do after having done this for 30 plus years right yeah i think uh have these conversations with my wife a lot I'm, i think that the biggest most important thing about the turtles and richard rich and bill has totally been lost and de-emphasized and that is that rich and bill were these incredible geniuses i mean great people amazingly nice kind people but really just genius people And uh, if you start their turtle story or the book, whatever book or story you're talking about, and that's not preeminent, then you're missing the whole point. It's just amazing how ahead of the game that they were. The rules, I just keep saying to myself, I, I think I might end my career having 
realized that everything we did there was absolutely perfect. And the only change was uh, more diversification and longer term. You know, we needed to be longer term. But I keep discarding and, and getting rid of all of my improvements. I'm down to like just a couple of minor things. Philosophically, and the turtles were totally prepared for the future and evolving. I just think we may have evolved away from some of the core principles that uh, we regret now. And this is why, at least I often talk about why I think trend following is so robust, even though robust is really a word that we can't define because what does it look like? It's different to people can have a different view on what does robustness mean. But robustness to me is kind of confirmed by what you're saying that you're going further and further back to where you started. And all you were taught in those years, back in the mid-80s to late 80s, was actually enough for you for the next 40 years. But the problem is that as soon as we start managing external capital, it doesn't always mean that it's enough because we have all these external pressures to try and fit a return stream into the liking of what these investors expect. And they may not understand trend following the same way we do. You know, Rich famously said one time, I could print the rules on the front page of the New York Times and no one would follow them. And I think that speaks to people not being able to follow rules. You know, I hear the rules, can you follow them? Who out there that we know has ever said to anybody, you and me or the, anybody, I have just followed the simple rules my entire career? I don't know of anybody that said that to us. People extol the value of their research and change and adapting. But I think a twist on that rule of what Rich said, not only would people not follow those rules, they would argue against them. I think the turtles were not losers, but we didn't have a lot going on in life. You know, we, we were not leaving big Wall Street jobs to come to Chicago. So uh, we were in the beginning of our careers. So we were, whatever Rich said, we would do it. We loved, we just wanted to serve him. He was an amazing guy in all respects. So we'd absolutely not only had difficulty following the rules as, as human beings, but we, but we did believe them and we didn't argue back. Oh my gosh. So uh, we recognized genius when we saw it. So, but now when I meet people, they may follow the rules just fine. Oh yeah, they may follow their rules, but they will disagree with and argue that, no, your rules are crap. I don't care how long you've been around. I don't care sample size, robustness, no, I will argue with you. I've got a six months experience programming Python, and let me show you what I can do. I've gotten rid of a lot of these drawdowns that, that you continue to take. This time is different, right? That's always the argument. It's kind of funny, right? Because you're absolutely right. I mean, we always say that trend following is kind of based, and the reason why it works is it's based on some level of human behavior that we can extract profits from because people tend to follow the trend, so to speak. But then at the same time, human behavior, as you absolutely correctly say, is that we don't like to follow rules, right? So it's this meeting of opposites that I find quite intriguing, which is, of course, also why we say that you have to park your emotions and your, to a certain extent, your intellect 
once you've decided on how you want to trade your system. As we were talking before about politics, before we went on air, and politics and Bitcoin being a religion and politics being religion, people act like it's religion. I'm right, you're wrong. There's no uh, meeting of uh, let's compromise and humbleness in your opinions. I think it's the same with trading systems. I'll follow my rules because my rules are the truth. Your rules, I'm not so sure about your rules. I think that's unfortunate. I've always learned, I was taught, I was told what to do. And so I've always been in that mode of waiting for someone else to come around and be and tell me an insight and not dismissing it, holding on to it possibly for years until I finally understood what they were talking about. So I think that is lost on the younger generation. And if Rich was so smart and people really believed that, Rich and Bill were these genius people, well, the first thing I need to do is go out and scour the internet and figure out how they traded, the turtle rules, and hire Jerry and ask him. But no one really believes that. No one believed it like we believed it. That's what gives me confidence. And um, the ability to sit through drawdowns is way more than just the turtles had this huge edge of being in that boot camp for four years, not just having the rules given to them. Which is also probably why we shouldn't be too concerned about too many people ending up doing trend following because they're just not going to have the stamina to follow the rules in the long run. Now, I want to move on because just in the consideration of time, I just want to check in with you Jerry, there are a couple of other things you mentioned, and I just want to see whether that areas you want to discuss. You talked a little bit about trade level basics, how and when to increase the trade level. Do you want to put some words to that? I say we save that for another time. That could be a long discussion. Okay. Money management, anything there you want to continue with? I've already said my piece on money management today. You know, I think taking small losses and diversifying longs and shorts, all the different, as many markets as possible, and trading the appropriate leverage. If you trade too large, like the turtles traded very large and had massive drawdowns, then frequent reductions in risk and then increases back in risk, this becomes a weekly part, a monthly part of what's going on. I think that's probably not where you want to be. You want to trade small so you're not in the daily course of volatility, you're not uh, co compelled to increase your leverage, decrease your leverage so much, and just rely upon your diversification and your small losses as your money management. As I said earlier, I listened to another Jack Schwager podcast yesterday, and yeah. he said again that the key to the market wizards in all the books and everything is money management, risk management. I have no idea what he means by that. I think... I'd like to dig down deep. Maybe I should read the darn books, but I think for trend followers, if we're anything beyond diversification and stop losses, taking small losses, and a reasonable leverage amount, if we're adding other things to the trend following and calling it money management, that's reducing the reliability of our system. Yeah, well, maybe we'll ask Jack next time he comes back on the podcast, which would be nice, because I think that's an interesting point. Now, one question that came in that I think we should definitely deal with 
something you're going to find interesting, Jerry. I can reveal that. But also want to just say thanks and, and acknowledge Brian, who often writes in with some questions, but who just wanted to send a, a quick message saying that he very much enjoyed that we spend a little bit more time now in the new year, digging into some of the positions where we're making money, where we're losing money in the beginning of the conversation. So hopefully more people than Brian thinks that's a good addition to the uh, weekly conversations. So we'll keep doing that but thanks for the comment, Brian. Now, Zach writes in with a unusual question, so bear with me here. Once trading program generates a signal to go long, and that security is trading at an annualized volatility of, say, 25. You execute on the signal, and over time, the position builds to the maximum size allowed by the trading system's risk management structure. Now, this price increase and annualized volatility now doubles to 50. If the trading system had a volatility targeting strategy, the position size would be reduced as the volatility increases. Here comes the question. Is there a strategy that has been studied that would do the opposite? Signal to increase the size of the position as volatility increases. This is assuming that the risk management structure has some allowance to increase the position size beyond the maximum allowed size in certain conditions. Now, obviously, I have my own views, and I also think that maybe Zach's question is formulated in a way that practically would be difficult to do, but the stage is yours, Jerry, because it is something that you like to talk about. I, I like that last part. It was good thinking. Yeah. Yeah, do the opposite. You know, I think, think the opposite. I like that. I think he starts off with some misconceptions. So I think that we're trading multiple systems, multiple entries, breakout entries, let's say. So we get into these things all on the same day, or they're spread out over a couple of weeks, or we get into one or two systems and it fails and it goes the other way and the other systems don't get long. We're not putting these trades on and building up based upon the profit in the other systems. You know, if our target is 10 contracts, I may break it up into five different pieces, you know, five different trades. It's going to happen probably pretty quickly if the trend continues. I may have gotten in those soybeans on the same day back in August. So that's kind of a misconception. And then a lot of us won't have volatility targeting. We have a, on those 10 contracts, I might want to risk 50 basis points total. And then once the market turns into a profit, I disregard the increase in volatility. If it goes up a hundred times, maybe I'll do a discretionary move like in Tesla and reduce my position somewhat. There's no math behind that. There's no back test behind it. But uh, we're not all volatility. I don't have a volatility budget or target. I risk my 50 bips. I get out. If it keeps going, I let it go. Uh, I don't care what the volatility necessarily is going to do. He brought up a good idea. I do think that I've often thought... Maybe if you have a, I've done some research on this and it seems to work that from a backtest point of view and from a money management point of view, I would prefer to do a trade quicker if the market has a lot of volatility. So if, if it's Friday afternoon and this market I'm looking at is almost to my entry and it's up like two or three ATRs on the day, like a tremendous reaction. Maybe I'll go early and just get in on Friday before Monday 
because the market is showing tremendous strength. And um, I'm thinking like, golly, this thing could gap open on Monday. So I think the whole point is, as painful as it is, golly, I can't believe this thing is up so much and I'm not long. And it's probably going to come back on Monday. And I don't want to buy the high of the day. I think have the opposite point of view. And that is speed it up. Like uh, back in February, speed up your entries if it's really a crazy volatile day. And respect that price trend during the middle of the day, intraday, be a trend follower and say, wow, this is really getting my attention. The last thing on my mind is a bad fill and not wanting to sell the low or buy the high. The market is telling me you should be afraid something crazy is happening here. Respect this price action. Yeah, no, great, great answer. So from my side, Zach, I just want to say that I think you would run into some practical problems if you said, okay, the more volatile the market, the more I'm going to increase my position because you will have heard us say many times that one of the things that's very important is that you manage your overall risk so that you can play another day, right? Otherwise, you just end up blowing up. And I think you would find that the more volatile markets get and the more risk you put on, one day that's just going to end badly. So I would think differently as to how you could do that. Now, as I explained, if you go back and listen to, I think it was episode 120 over the holidays, I did talk about that in the trend following, and I call it the model portfolio because it doesn't have any actual money in it today, but the systems that I was part of designing back in the day we did have different position sizing. We didn't take the same position size in all markets, in all models, because we had thought about what we wanted to do with it. So there's nothing wrong with not trading everything the same, but you need to understand why you don't trade them the same, for example. Anyways, I do appreciate your question and your suggestion. That's always good to hear. Now, before we wrap up completely today, uh, let me just run through some numbers as we normally do. As Jer and I have mentioned, yesterday was not a great day for trend followers. So uh, these numbers are as of Thursday. So they'll probably be smaller when the day is over yesterday. But the beta 50 is still up for the month and for the year, up 1.06%. Sokjian CT index up 1.43%. Trend index doing well, up 2%. Short-term traders index is down 50 basis points. And the alternative risk premium index is up 1.5%. Now, we do sometimes end up our conversations recommending some other resource or podcast that we've come across during the week. Don't know if you have one, uh, Jerry, but from my point, I was actually in the middle of listening to one, which is going to be my pick for this week. And that is on the Grant Williams Show podcast with Paul Singer, who's the founder of Elliott Investment Management. From what I've heard so far, that is a really fascinating conversation. So I will definitely finish that later today. Anything that you came across that you want to highlight, recommend? Uh, last week's podcast with you and Moritz was great. Like I said, I enjoyed Corey on Odd Lots. Yep. And then... RCM, the derivative I watched yesterday on YouTube with uh, Jack, and that was really good as well. Just really into that type of listening to traders and trading ideas. I think that's really fun stuff. Absolutely. No, great suggestions. And 
before we wrap up, of course, if you um, do find value in our weekly conversations, we would be ever so grateful if you would show that. Give it a little bit of love in iTunes by going and doing a rating and review. We would love to have as many of those as possible because that's something that the algorithms in iTunes pick up. So it helps us get some better ranking. So please spend a few minutes doing that when you finish this episode. Next week, I'm joined by Mark and we will definitely would like to uh, receive some of your questions to discuss and you can email them as usual to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to discuss those. And in the meantime, from Jerry and me, thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you in a week's time. And in the meantime, be well and stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.